Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connections, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. With me today is Dr. Alison Escalante, and she's on a mission to eradicate the epidemic anxiety that is impacting parents and professionals. And she has designed a method to address it, a method that she calls the shoot storm and which she shared with the world in an extremely powerful TEDx talk. She writes about the science of human performance for Forbes, and she also writes for Psychology Today. She's a full-time practicing pediatrician and an adjunct professor at Rush University. Hello, Dr. Allison, and welcome to Back to Basics. Well, thank you so much for having me on today. Well, I'm super excited because, you know, as I research all my guests, you know, I was like, oh, my God, this is so great because I'm a parent. I have a six-year-old and a 10-year-old. So right there, <laughs> this has been already very fruitful for me, even before interviewing you. <laughs> it's a lot being a parent. My kids are nine and 11, and, you know, they just started um, going back to school a couple hours a week. They've been remote learning since COVID started. And, you know, I thought parenting was challenging before, but wow. <laughs> I know, but I have to thank people like you that are really taking the time to help us parents, you know, navigate all these things. And even before COVID, all you're doing on anxiety and all that. So there's a lot I want to cover, but I always have to start by asking about your childhood. And did you dream about doing what you do? Tell me about where you're from and a little bit of that journey in becoming Dr. Allison. Well, I'm from New Jersey and I had deep family roots there. So uh, people love to tease New Jersey, but uh, I have New Jersey pride. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I thought about how to answer that question because when, when you ask, well, you know, like what, what did you dream of being? Well, I wanted to be an astronaut on the okay. weekends. Um, oh. and during the week I wanted to be a teacher and I also wanted to write fiction. So oh, wow. <laughs> let me stop it right there. That must be the best answer to that question up to date. I have to tell you <laughs> an astronaut for the weekend that I love that. <laughs> Obviously, uh, that's not really how it works, but that, that was my goal. I was, I was going to do a little bit of all of it. I love it. I love it. And that's so, and, and, and your passions and, and, you know, your personality, do you think that whatever, whatever happened later, like I'm going to become a doctor, I'm going to be a pediatrician. Is there a link there that you link to your childhood? I mean, I think so. I grew up with two younger brothers. I was the big sister and when I was in, uh, before I entered sixth grade, we moved to a town where in our neighborhood, it was almost all boys. So I pretty much just was like the big sister of a whole gang of boys. And um, we used to, we used to have adventures because the town was at the foothill of the mountains. And so there were woods, you know, occasionally you'd have lots of deer and 
gophers in the backyard and all sorts of critters. And every once in a while, a black bear would wander through. Oh boy. (laughs) But it was, and there was like a stream where we would, you know, play with the guppies. And I don't know. I just, I think that it kind of put me in that sort of Wendy and Peter Pan role, you know, like Mm -hmm. I was just kind of thinking about like, well, what, what, what do these guys need? And, you know, I see that's, yeah, that's great. Well, I, I, I am like you. I had an older brother and although I was uh, the younger sister, but always surrounded by boys. I think it's good. It makes a woman more resilient when you have that kind of environment growing up. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, for one thing, I learned how to do boy conflict, which is very direct. And then it's over when it's over. <laughs> and um, I loved I loved roughhousing and stuff. But I think one of the things that really helped me was that, you know, just when you grow up and you eventually become interested in pairing off and so many of my friends had just would try so hard to understand these guys and understand how they think. And they were always overcomplicating it. I'm like, no, (laughs) they're very straightforward, these guys, you know, and I just, and it it seems like I've just been training all in my life because I'm, uh, I've got two boys. And so it's like, I was in training to be a boy mom. Mm-hmm. all along. <laughs> and so some parents I think are very shocked when boys start wrestling in the middle of the living room. But to me, that's quite normal. <laughs> yeah. No, I, well, I have a boy and a girl and I, I've said it on the show before, but I told my husband, it has helped us being a better marriage, having a boy and a girl, because we see things in our kids that are, is just their software. Like I see my daughter, she's six and she helps me set the table without me asking. It's just somehow it's there and she wants to help. She wants to nurture the brother. She goes and she gets a cookie for her. She takes one for Christian, you know, without anybody saying. And then <laughs> my my son, if I dress up for work, I say, hey, how does mommy look? Uh-huh, fine. <laughs> you know? right. So I used to get upset at my husband, you know, but now I see it. He's just, he's being a boy. That would be very useful. I, uh, until recently, was the only girl in my home and my, my husband grew up with a brother. So, you know, I've always been a little bit of a mystery to him, but now we have a a female puppy. So at least I'm not the only girl. There you go. Well, if you're still having in you, I have to say, I always say, I don't mind having two boys and I kind of wanted the second one to be a boy. And we never knew the the gender before the birth. We waited on both occasions and that, and I, every time people say, oh, you get the couple. And I don't know, I, I always resisted and rejected that. And now that I have the little girl, I have to say there is something there. There's a special bond with mommy that I could never imagine existed. I don't know. It's just very interesting. So <laughs> this, you see, I can talk about, I can feel that we can talk for hours. So you became a pediatrician following, you would say you follow your passion. Yeah. I mean, I think um, you could look at like teacher and astronaut and say, well, how does that link? But I, I think it starts to make sense actually, because in uh, my undergraduate years, I studied medieval cultural history and the history of ideas. So like it all hangs together because I've always been really interested in how we work and like what makes us human and studying history and especially studying how ideas and culture shape the way we live and who, how we think of ourselves was just very enlightening. Um, but I was also always good at science. Um, and so, and I really wanted to do something to help people right now, not just, you know, studying the past. So I ended up in medical school 
And uh, I, I didn't have any doctors in the family. So it was just sort of like almost a surprise to be, oh, I guess I'm in medical school now. <laughs> um, not that I didn't work for it, but, you know, I just had been very unsure of, of um, what I wanted to do because I was interested in a lot of things. But in the end, once I was a pediatrician, it just suddenly all that stuff that I'd thought about before, like showed up for me because I realized parents were really struggling I kept looking for the book that they needed um, and I couldn't find it. And I started to notice this pattern. And one of the patterns was that there's a ton of parenting advice out there. And at that time, most of the advice tended to blame the parents. Like you have to do it this way or your kid's not going to turn out okay. And it's going to be your fault no matter what. And that really irked me because most parents I knew were doing the best they could with what they knew. Right. And people come into parenting with different levels of skills. And, and some parents who try to do well by their kids weren't parented very well themselves. Right. And they're, they're doing the best we can. And then I, I started to realize maybe the problem wasn't finding the right parenting advice. Maybe the problem was what the, that we all needed to, to back off on parents. So all of a sudden, now I'm looking at culture, I'm looking at ideas, I'm looking at how ideas about who we are shape how we think of ourselves and our kids. And I'm realizing all that stuff I studied at Princeton as an undergraduate about ideas was, it was right there. And this is the culture of criticism. This is the culture of anxiety. This is the culture that tells parents you have to optimize your child's development or they're going to be screwed up. And it's the same culture that tells professionals you have to optimize every last ounce of your energy to be perfectly successful. Um, and I call it the should storm because it's, you should do this. You should do that. You should never do that other thing. Should, 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 should. And it's so distracting and it's so powerful that we lose touch with ourselves. Um, and arguably it doesn't make us more productive. It might make us work hard, but it doesn't make us innovators. And it doesn't really help us to be the parents we want to be. Wow, no, it's uh, amazing. I think you're definitely on a on a great track there. And, you know, I'm going to put your TEDx talk on, on the show notes, but it's very powerful. Anybody out there should listen to this. And not only parents, because I think you hit it on the nail. Recently, I got my husband to start like a meditation, like I got into mindfulness meditation. And I know you, you've spoken about this on your TEDx talk during COVID, like at the very beginning of the okay. pandemic. I've always kind of entertained meditation and I'm a spiritual person. So I do some sort of, of that, something like that. But I took up on like, okay, I want to do this more because I recognize that the mental well-being I've said it before, like the first time I officially felt overwhelming my entire life, because I'm a very energetic person, was at the beginning of the pandemic when I had to do the online learning with my kids and still run a company and run the house and feed everybody and clean the house and everything, basically. And I was overwhelmed. And so I, I, I decided to take on mindfulness meditation and it really helped me, like just those 15 minutes to reset the mindset. But then I got, my husband was up to do it. And recently we were doing a Pema Chodron retreat online that is going there. And he got an answer, you know, he got the opportunity to ask her something. And he was struggling with productivity, exactly what you said. Like he said, I'm an engineer. 
I never done meditation and I'm struggling with when I'm trying to shut everything down, I have this chip of you should be doing this. You should be do, to be more productive, which is exactly what you just said. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real challenge for us in Western cultures or cultures that are increasingly being influenced by this idea to waste time. But uh, yeah, I've been meditating for years now. But what's interesting is it didn't, that was like a shift from the way I grew up. You know, I, I remember one time when I was a kid, I, uh, I was kind of like a nerdy student and I did very well in school, but I also pushed myself too hard all the time. And I had teachers that I think were trying to inspire me, uh, but nobody ever said to me, relax a little, honey. Everybody said, yeah go for it. You're going to be this. You got, you got to do this. And, and I think they were trying to encourage me, but all I ever felt was I didn't know how to relax at all. And so one day I remember asking my dad, uh, in high school toward the end, I was so exhausted. I'd been working so hard. And I said, when dad, like, can I take a break? Like, when do you, what, can, can I just do good enough? Right. And he looked at me and I think he, again, was just well-meaning trying to be supportive, but he said, yeah, you know, you've got to know when to push and when to relax. And, mm-hmm. and then he, you know, went upstairs and I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep pushing <laughs> because uh, <yeah. laughs> what I needed was for him to say, honey, go to bed. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it's, it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's good enough. Right. Um, but that just wasn't a concept for me. So you know, and I think that's very, very common for a lot of us. It's suit and certainly the way um, uh, women doctors are. And you have to, at some point, face your limits. And uh, especially being a physician, the career will always eventually drive you against the wall of your limits because of the way, I mean, we are one of the careers where we're the ultimate like push all the time, right? Yes. And, you know, you, you, during training, like it was normal to, I can't tell you how many times I worked uh, as a training or in my pediatric practice in my first couple of years, sicker than my patients. Right. Mm. Um, it was normal. And so like, I remember one time, uh, having a fever of 103 and seeing patients and the parents worried, uh, because their child maybe had like some sniffles, and I'm like dying and I'm, I'm my back aches and I'm sweating and I have a fever, but it never occurred to me to stay home. And there would have been no support from my colleagues to stay home. Yeah. Shout out to my current group. Uh, we don't come to work sick at my current group. So that's pretty great. <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah. yeah I, I think you're, you're right in terms of the cultural shift. In, in my case, I'm, my parents are Italian. My husband is Dutch. So we spend our summers in Europe. That's one of the things that we struggle the most. And we've been in the States for 25 years and we love this country. But one of the things that scares us the most is that people here don't know how to step aside. You know, when you're on vacation, when you, it's time to relax, like we're super hard workers. But when it's time to relax in Europe, they relax. You know, they take long vacations, they take long lunch, and never is it, you know, productivity linked to how long are you in front of your computer or doing email. And that's really our our biggest challenge, even as parents, because we see it already with my 10-year-old, you know, when he gets a grade that is not great for him, something happened, and he's so hard on himself. Yeah 
that it scares me because he he feels like the world is falling. And we, the parents, tell him, hey, it's just a grade, no problem. And he doesn't relax. So I'm scared sometimes about the society and, and the culture you you are living in and how it impacts you. Yeah, it really it really does. But I, I think that there's a longing right now in American culture to learn how to relax. Like there's a real desire there. And it's really hard, right? Like when you have mothers um, and, you know, yet mothers of young children, they really don't take care of themselves. And part of it is young children are exhausting and there's barely any energy. But in order to convince a mother of young children that she needs to take care of herself, it is very hard to convince them if I say, you matter, you're important, please take care of yourself. That's not going to work. I have to tell her, if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to do a, this for your child. So think of this as a loving thing you do to invest in your child by taking care of yourself, right? It's got to be about that. And it's the same thing with productivity. You know, I write articles showing people how mind-wandering or relaxing wait, you know, time where you're not doing anything is crucial for productivity, right? But how much more healthy would it be if we could just say, it's good to enjoy life. It's good to take a long lunch sometime. It's good to spend time with friends like, like you might do in your European time, you know? And that's just not something that we grasp very easily. We may say the words, um, but it's, it's really challenging. And, and it's hard because even when people want to do that, the culture pushes against it. Uh, and Absolutely. so it's like a salmon swimming up against the current to try to get over the waterfall. If you, <laughs> and that's not very relaxing, right? Like I have to work really hard to fight the culture to relax. And, you know, <laughs> um, but yes, mindfulness, I'm a big fan. I, I think a lot of people um, still don't understand how easy it can actually be to begin a practice. I've been delighted by the new apps like Headspace and Calm that are so accessible. Yeah. You know, and uh, I've, I've been using them myself lately, um, but it's much easier than trying to sit there and and uh, and and focus and say, oh, <laughs> absolutely. But also you say something that's so true in your in your TED talk. And um, I in this other course that I'm doing with Pema Children, she emphasizes in the power of just stop. And you said it, like, if you don't have time to meditate, which is true, most of us, even if it's 10 minutes and sound like easy to do, it's not easy to do because it's also a mindset and, and not every moment is a good mindset for meditation. But you said something about you stop and it's part of the three-step process, right, that you that you created for the shoot storm where you sigh, you see, and you start something. And, you, and, and the, a lot of mindfulness teachers, they say that, stop. Pause in the middle of the of the day, look outside, create that mini gap of nothingness, and then keep going. And that already is so powerful. So I when I originally came up with the method for parents, I used the word stop. And then I realized that that was too hard. Think back to when your children were very little. And I don't know if they were intense like mine were, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, think about a three-year-old where they ask for the orange cup, you give them the orange cup, and then they throw in massive temper tantrum because they don't want the orange cup. I mean, you know, <laughs> these are irrational little humans. And especially in uh, households where, well, I, I want to I say something here, though, because I was going to say, especially in households where both parents work, there's this constant rush to it. 
But there's a different kind of pressure on uh, parents where one stays home, right? They may have a little less time pressure, but there's an intensity there as well. So, so both ways of doing this are really hard. Remembering to stop when your kid is, is freaking out, it doesn't work. And so I, I moved it to just three steps, which is sigh, see, and start. Now, sigh is great. Parents tell me all the time, well, I sigh at my kids anyway. That's perfect. I can do that, <laughs> right? And so, but, but sighing is really powerful because um, sighing is a built-in biological function. Like we do it on purpose and we do it because it actually turns on what's called the ventral vagal nerve. And that's the nerve that tells our whole body and brain, it's okay. You can connect with other people. And so that's our common connected um, social nervous system that gets turned on. Now, one sigh might not do it under pressure, but it's a start. And sighing is really important because there's so much focus on breathing activities. But the key thing that makes a difference is breathing out slowly. This is what sends a message to your nervous system that you're actually safe. And if you think that doesn't make sense, think back to how you really felt when your kid was throwing stuff around. (laughs) It's hard to imagine people feeling threatened by a three-year-old, but actually when parents talk very frankly with each other, that's exactly how we feel. I mean, we feel overwhelmed. We feel threatened. We feel like we feel our, especially mothers will often feel that our worth is threatened because if my kid acts up, then I'm not a good mother. Right. So we move out of that fight or flight or that threat response that our kid turns on. And instead of yelling at them or spanking them, we sigh. (sighs) (laughs) And then the second step is seeing. um, And this is something we rarely do because we're driven by the should storm. We're driven by you should get your kid to behave. You should not have a kid who throws a temper tantrum over a cup. And so And then when we do that, we're not looking at our child. We're not looking at the situation. We're just reacting and we're reacting usually with anxiety. So we sigh and then we see to mindfully assess the situation to see what's actually going on with our kid. And sometimes in the three-year-old example, that's all you need. Sometimes you get there and you realize she's a three-year-old. I'm a (laughs) grown-up. And sometimes that's it, you know? Sometimes the side does it, really. Like when you've surrendered to the situation, like, and you see what's going on, that already, you know, is so powerful. Yeah. And sometimes people are afraid of that surrender, that relaxing, because it makes mm-hmm. them feel like they won't be able to master the situation. But we both know from practicing mindfulness for a while, that's not the case at all. It's actually in this, in that relaxing And accepting the situation as it is that we actually are able to find our best solutions. We're able to find our leadership, right? And that's when you start. And um, I I love start. That's my favorite. That's what's really unique about this. And it's what mindfulness teachers, I think I'm kind of unique in teaching this, which is you just start trying something, right? Once you've sighed and connected with yourself, you've seen your child, you, you, you start trying something that you think might be appropriate. And sometimes that's doing nothing. Sometimes it's doing something. Sometimes it's doing absolutely the wrong thing. And that's where it gets really fun. Because as soon as you do something wrong, you're going to trigger the should storm. You're going to say, oh, I should have done it that way. I'm a lousy parent, right? But um, if you can, we both know what to do if you feel a should. Every time you feel a should, you sigh, see, and start again. 
And so it suddenly turns everything on its head because now we're approaching our children in this active learning, active experimenting that starts with connection. And it is remarkable. Honestly, I've been shocked by how quickly parents tell me about turnarounds in their household, changes in the whole tone of the family. I'm not saying it solves everything, but it it gets us in the frame where we can really you know, be better parents. And it gets us in the frame where if we know about other techniques or, you know, even you're working, say your child's really struggling, you're working with a therapist. If you sigh, see, and start, you're going to be a lot more likely to apply uh, what they're teaching you. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And that's why I love your TEDx talk. You said something that really resonated with me, which is get curious about what you're seeing. Because inherently, that's kind of what I've always done. And in my family, I come, my parents are Sicilian. So there's a lot of shoots in that <laughs> background. <laughs> and, he, he, you know, it's been a journey to just question the shoots and, and be curious about why, why am I doing this? Am I doing this because my mom used to do it? Or what's my motivation behind this? And that has helped so much. And, and that curiosity, even on every guest that I've invited here, that, you know, has pursued a, a passion, has shared that curiosity has been one of the key factors to their, you know, success or journey or whatever validated in their lives. Well, and that's part of my secret plan, because if you study positive psychology and the science of happiness, curiosity is one of the things that make us happier in life. So if I can help shift parents out of anxiety into curiosity and connection, right? They're going to be a lot happier, you know, and then the kids are going to be happier. And it's also what I loved what you said about curiosity, because the other thing is to get curious then about what you just tried, right? What get curious about what's working and what's not and what used to work and now it's not and, and what's going on there. And then what I love too about developing curiosity uh, towards your kids is that as they get older, it becomes a much more natural transition into working with them into collaborating. And, and um, if you stay curious about your kids, you're much less likely to miss it as they grow and develop new capabilities. Yeah. So these days, it's pretty fantastic because a lot of the times my kids solve our problems. I ask them like, <laughs> hey, what do you think a good, this is the challenge we're having. What do you think a good strategy would be here? You know, and, and the kids will make proposals. And a lot of times we'll, we'll negotiate and decide what we want to try, you know? And I, I I love it. Yeah. Love it. It's I approach it kind of the same way. When I don't know which way to go, I ask for their advice. And it's so funny because when they give me advice and uh, like I, I was invited to co-author a book and I wasn't sure. And so I asked Christian and then he gave me this whole kind of reasoning. I did it. And now he always tells me, you see, I advise you to do it. Like he feels so happy with that, you know, the help he provided. I love that. Um, yeah. I, I also think it's so cute when they provide advice. My nine-year-old yesterday was like, mom, make sure to wash your hands right away after making uh, eggs, because if you don't, you could get salmonella. <laughs> <laughs> so I love it. That's, no, that's great. But now, since I have you here, before I give you an open microphone to share anything more inspiring of all the amazing things you're working, I want to take advantage because you talked about anxiety and you. I know you've written articles about COVID and how to deal with it. I personally have several friends of mine that struggle, are struggling with severe anxiety over sending their kids back to school. So there's some kids that, you know, are not going to school, even if their school is open. 
And I, I personally, I'm sending my kids. I also struggle with the decision. I think it's one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make in my life. But so far, you know, they've been going there for several months and all has been good. But I understand parents that say, I don't want to send them. And so there's kids that for a year have been home. And so I just want your take on that and 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 your own vision about the whole school thing. In well, COVID I times. think this is a conversation I have pretty much every day in my office <laughs> with um, my families that I care for. And I'm really honored where I live to take care of a very multicultural and, and really multi-international group of people. Um, so many, many families um, that I care for are, you know, uh, working here, but they've they're relatively recent immigrants from other countries. Um, but I also happen to take care of a pretty educated, highly educated population. So it's been very interesting. And so my attitude has been this. People come to this just like everything else in life. They come to this with different experiences, with different things they've seen and different things that are I think I think the pandemic has made us all look at like what are my make or break issues? What are what are the things that are critical? And I think many parents that choose their to send their kids back to school, it's the social development feels critical, right? Or the in-person learning feels critical. And for other parents, it's keeping my child safe from this dangerous disease is the the breaking point issue. And I don't think either choice is wrong. I think both are right choices. And so my comment about multicultural is just that um, many of the families I care for have come from countries that have faced very serious disease and infectious disease in a way that we've really had a luxury not to have to deal with it in the in the U.S. And these are many, very often the families who are keeping their kids home full time. And I think that's very telling that the people who understand dangerous, contagious diseases and have lived with it are the ones that are staying home the most strictly. Uh, so that taught me something. Yeah, my husband and I struggled terribly over this. Um, I think our school district in the end made it easy for us because they were one of the last to go back to a hybrid model. They've just started that. And that gave me time to watch the numbers and watch the statistics. So basically at this point, it looks like schools are one of the safest environments during COVID, particularly the schools that actually follow the CDC guidelines of wearing masks full time and attempting to distance the kids. And uh, there has been very little, it's not zero, but there's been very little spread of COVID in that setting. And so that has given me the confidence to, you know, send my kids back to hybrid. But my message is very simply one of support. Whatever people are deciding for their kids right now is okay. As a physician, I hope that decision is wearing masks and all of that. But when I, I mean choosing a safe school environment that's following guidelines versus staying home, I think these are both really good choices. Oh, that's so valuable, Dr. Alice. And I know a lot of people listening are going to welcome that because, you know, it's very valuable advice. And, and I think I'm with you. I'm like, if the school is following all the requirements, you have to trust the schools, trust the people that are there. That was huge for me as well to to decide to to send them. So thank you for that. So tell me what's new and exciting. Like, what are you working on? You have an open microphone to share <laughs> anything inspiring. I know you have a book that you can download. I will have the 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 links on the page. I know you have amazing um, articles, both on Forbes and Psychology Today. 
you're a writer. Obviously, you're an excellent writer. So definitely you you work out that passion of yours into into all you're doing. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I just want to throw out there is um, all the resources on my website are free. So there's also uh, a free email parenting course for parents who are looking to dive a little deeper into, um, you know, what I call should free parenting. We also have a Facebook group um, for parents called should free parenting. Uh, that's I joined there. I joined before <laughs> these. <laughs> so, yeah. So basically, um, so it's all at shouldstorm.com. But right now, in fact, I'm on tenterhooks waiting for my agent to get back to me because we're finalizing uh, the book proposal for Should Storm the Book. And it'll be, you know, why worried parents raise what worried kids and what to do about it. And so hopefully I'll be um, writing that book very soon. And it's interesting because people have told me that it was bad enough before COVID, but COVID has somehow put the should storm on steroids. So I'm really passionate about getting that out there as, uh, you know, a little more support than what you can get from the TEDx talk. But I'm also really excited about a new project because uh, one of the things that, that people really related to from the TEDx talk is they said, well, you're talking about parenting, but this feels like my work environment to me. So I do get to do a lot of speaking um, for organizations who want to talk about sort of <laughs> optimizing productivity by recognizing what gets in the way of that in the should storm. And, and, and all of this has led me into like a really deep dive into how our nervous system really works. So there's some cool things that we can do to kind of hack our brains so that we can show up as really powerful leaders. And, uh, and, and that is, uh, been really fun, but yeah, I, I've, uh, I've especially, you know, you asked when you sent me an email, you asked kind of like, Hey, was there ever a trauma in your childhood? Like, was there ever? And, and, uh, I think that's what ultimately like most people who don't come from doctor families kind of led me to become a doctor was after my mother and my brother were each hit by cars in the space of nine months and they each had traumatic brain injuries and it, they were, you know, they just huge struggles. I remember watching my mom who was always this incredibly articulate woman. And then she couldn't find words. And, Mm -hmm. and the, uh, and then like for many people with traumatic brain injury, that would lead to what almost looked like temper tantrums. Right. And which wasn't her fault. It was just that her brain was, and I was 11 years old at the time. And suddenly my mom went from this very competent woman to, to struggling. And then nine months later, my nine-year-old brother was hit by a car. Both of these cases were reckless drivers, by the way. And he had a traumatic brain injury and he was, um, I mean, his recovery took a long time and he was left with something very much like ADHD. You know, I think that there came there like a desire for healing, a desire for understanding, and maybe like a little fire in my belly, um, about justice, right. That like, we need to support people with challenges. We need to not label them. And so, I think that a lot of that led me to becoming a doctor, but it's also sort of interestingly connected to my current project, which is, you know, I'm really, I'm really noticing that across scientific fields, there's uh, a new thought emerging, but nobody's really talking about it. And it's that we are really misunderstanding anxiety and depression. So we Mm -hmm. label people as having disorders when in fact, anxiety and depression are actually really important built-in responses of our nervous system to certain kinds of 
adversity or pressure. And when you can start to understand what it's doing for us and why it's built in and why it might even be, you could consider it adaptive, it changes everything. And people start to see themselves as capable as, okay, maybe I got stuck in this response, but it started out as being, being there for a reason. And if it's part of a good biological system that's built into me, then I can figure out differently how to come out of this, right? Because it's not because I'm sick or broken. It's that, you know, this good defense system got turned on and maybe got stuck on. Um, And that's just a totally different thing from telling someone you are disordered, you have depression, you're probably going to have that your whole life, right? Which, Which just isn't true. So I think that's a very exciting uh, project. That is very exciting. I definitely think that that's uh, almost like a higher calling because there's a lot of people suffering from that. And I've had a few guests on my on my show that uh, deal with uh, also tra- uh, traumatic brain injury and how you make your patients uh, better. So I can definitely see that, that that's going to do good to a lot of people. I'm excited for you. And thanks for sharing the story about your mom and your brother. That's, uh, I imagine how that might have impacted, uh, you know, your, your whole life, basically, and, and the decisions you took. So in those dark times, uh, you know, that leads me perfect for, for my must question. It's about what makes people Thick. You know, what's your passion? And, you know, you, you talked about justice just now, and I can, I can I could see the smile on your face when you were saying that. So definitely you shared that. What else makes you tick and excited and helps you reconnect it with your true essence? Oh, I mean, I just, I can't help it. I love ideas and uh, I love talking with people about ideas but I, I am um, also what I would consider a spiritual person. And uh, I think that one definition of spirituality I love so much is a feeling of connection, connection to each other, connection to what's greater than us. And I think that that definition allows us to embrace people from different uh, traditions. You know, it crosses religions. And so I'm, I'm definitely an idea person, but, um, I love to be with people. And lately, one of my favorite things to do is take my kids to the dog park with our puppy. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of the only things to do that's safe right now. And I'm in Illinois where it's cold and snowy and it's, it's remarkable because you watch all these dogs playing and they're just pure joy. They're just Oh, they're pure joy. And then very often though, you'll see the puppies wrestling on the ground. And before you know it, my boys are wrestling with each other on the (laughs) ground and people are so open when they're around dogs. So you end up just talking to people and yeah, I don't know. That's, that's one of the things I've been really enjoying lately. Yeah. Well, uh, we shared that, that in common, a feeling of connection. That's why I do this podcast and you're the perfect example because right now I'm going to go around my day re-energized, inspired by having talked to you and, and, you know, and just proving that we, we never talked before, but just this felt like I've known you forever. So I thank you so much for your time and, and for all the work you're doing. Well, I feel the same way. I was pretty tired today. I didn't sleep well last night and now I'm feeling really energized and ready well, to do the rest of my day. Then I'm happy we both could provide that, that 
to each other. And we're taping this on a Monday, so we probably both needed that uh, extra push. <laughs> but I will share all your information. And obviously, as a mom of two young kids, I'm going to follow into your steps of your teachings, learnings, and discoveries. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And until the next time. Mm-hmm.